All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas with Making the Argument and today we've got a we've got a real treat for you. Here's what we're going to do today. All of those things that make you mad about politics, whether it's negative campaign ads or politicians entering into office as middle class and then leaving as millionaires or you know, you send a, a well-thought-out letter to your representative and you get this crappy auto-response form letter back, all right? And you probably wanted a chance to be able to ask, what, why do they do these things, right? Like, why? here's another one. Why do politicians never get anything done? Or why do they say one thing on the campaign trail and do another thing when they get into office? Well, I've got good news. So I'm an elected official, and I'm going to give you straight answers to all of these questions, right? I'm going to give you the straight, no kidding answer, right? They're, they're not always simple answers, but they're honest ones, right? So here we go. Let's start off with the first one. Here's one I get asked a lot, like, why is there so much money in politics and don't we need more campaign finance reform or do I support more campaign finance reform to keep all the money out of politics? All right, here's the issue. The Citizens United decision that the Supreme Court came down with basically said that a campaign donation is actually like a form of political speech, right? And, and the left got really mad about this because they didn't like the ideas that corporations or, or other organizations like that could give money. Uh, but they don't seem to have any problem with public sector employee unions giving money. And so the, the question becomes, like, why is there so much money in politics and, and how do we stop it? And one of the most common ways that people try to stop money in politics is through campaign finance reform, right? They put limits on how much an individual can donate to a particular campaign, or they make it um, illegal for corporations to give directly to a, a political campaign. Um, here's the problem. The reason why there's so much money in politics is because the government has so much control over the economy. That's really what it comes down to, right? If, if the federal government or state government, or pretty much any politician, if they just recognize that their job was to protect individual liberty, private property rights, and otherwise let people live their lives, if they weren't constantly trying to pass new regulations or taxes on businesses, then businesses wouldn't spend as much time worrying about who was in office, because why would you? Right? It's, it's not like it's a, an otherwise you know, wise investment of your dollars. You should be focused on building your business, providing better products and services, appealing to your customers, okay? And that's all great, and that's, that's usually what businesses focus on. But if you're in a situation where the next law coming down the pike could potentially run you out of business because you can't handle the regulatory cost or because you can't handle the additional taxes, well, then you're going to spend money on lobbyists. You're going to spend money on 
uh, political campaigns in order to help pe get people elected that are going to make sure that those things don't happen. On the other side of that, you have some businesses that they want the regulations or they want the additional taxes because they've got enough of a consumer base to where they can handle it, but they know their competition can't. That's why it's somewhat comical to me when people will point to a certain business or like Jeff Bezos and Amazon saying, yeah, we need more corporate taxes. He can afford them. He knows his competition can't. He knows that the more taxes and the more regulations in the marketplace, the harder it's going to be for someone else to rise up and challenge him. Right? So that's why there's so much money in politics. It's because we have so much control over the economy. And, and the only way, the only way you're going to get you know, less money in politics, less money influencing elections, is if you actually have a situation where we're not constantly micromanaging every aspect of your life. And some people will say, well, okay, we're, we're a long way from politicians actually displaying a little bit of humility with respect to their control over the economy. So in the meantime, we'll pass campaign finance reform. Let me tell you what I think is the biggest problem with campaign finance reform. Now, one, some of the things that have been suggested within it, you know, run really close to violating the First Amendment. But other things is, if you're an incumbent, you already have a lot of advantages, right? You, you have a donor base, you have an email list, you have volunteers, you're invited to things all over your district to go and speak, whether it's to the Chamber of Commerce or to the university or the local high school, right? You send out letters informing your constituents on what's going on. You have name recognition, right? You have, you have the things that you need to run for office. If you're coming in and you're challenging that incumbent, right? And campaign finance laws are written in such a way to where you know, you, you can't spend as much money or you can't have as many people donate to you, you're already starting off with a huge disadvantage against that incumbent. And so a lot of campaign finance laws, I think, work as incumbent protection laws. And that's one of the big reasons I have a problem with it. You'll see a lot of other people, too, that will come up with rules like you shouldn't be able to get out-of-state, you know, funding for your campaign. Again, here's the problem with that. People will just set up a political action committee, and then the money will come into the political action committee, and then the political action committee will, will spend it. Well, then they say, okay, well, don't let political action committees form. Okay, well, now you're telling people that they're not allowed to form with other like-minded people in order to make their voice heard on an election, right? So you, you run into this constant problem. The bottom line is, is that, unfortunately, there's no easy solution, but the best solution is to elect people that don't think their job is to micromanage the economy or to hand out favors. You know, we, we, you know, we talk about you know, welfare. There's also such a thing as corporate welfare, and there's a lot of it, right? And so you'll, you'll have people you know, manipulating the economy in, in order to put, you know, give an advantage to one business over another. And so those businesses are really you know, um, incentivized to spend a lot of money on the campaigns for people that are going to protect them or their industry, when in reality, what legislators should be doing when it comes to laws governing the economy is we're, we're just there to, to set what the kind of the boundaries are, right? And I don't mean boundaries as far as how much money you can make or what you can produce. I mean things like fraud, embezzlement. You know, these are the things that, that we should be making laws on, not everything else. But again, if you want to, if you want to see less money in politics, you're going to have to have a government that doesn't think it's their job to micromanage your entire life in the economy. Okay, next question. Why do politicians say one thing and do another? This is a good question. This is a good question. And I'll go ahead and answer it directly. You ready? It's because the polling suggests that you will forgive them 
for not getting certain things done, but you won't elect them if they don't promise enough. Right? I mean, I think that's garbage. Um, but I'm also really careful in what I promise. What I promise to my voters is that I see as my job is to protect their liberty, protect their property, and keep the government out of their way. It is really easy to vote that way. It is easy to carry legislation that way. It's difficult to get it passed sometimes, but I make promises that I can keep. But Thomas Sowell said it best. Thomas Sowell went on this whole idea of, you know, you've got all these politicians out there promising all of these things to people and then either not delivering on their promises or partially delivering on their promises. You know, why is that? And Thomas Sowell said, when people expect from their government things that their government cannot possibly produce or achieve, then only liars will suffice as candidates, right? Put, put real simply, if you're expecting the government to be able to do something or to be able to fix things that the government can't really fix, or that the government historically makes worse by attempting to fix, but that, that's what you want to hear. If you want to hear from your politicians that they're going to they're make sure you get rural broadband and they're going to make sure you get free healthcare and they're going to make sure you get free education, uh, then that's what they promise. And, and, then they, and then they work toward it, right? Now, the, the truth of the matter is, is that there's no such thing as free healthcare. There's no such thing as free education. And the, the cost to actually put broadband, like actually digging in the dirt through all of rural America, is billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. Um, that's the reality. All right. But in, in a campaign cycle, there, there's no shortage of people that are very, very happy to promise that they're going to work for all of those things with the, with the knowledge that they're probably not going to be able to produce a lot of it. Right? And, and this goes into one of the other questions, which is, why can't you guys get anything done? All right, well, here's the reality. Um, you know, I'm a member of the Virginia House of Delegates. There's 100 delegates. I am one of 100. I have one vote in 100. So when I show up and I submit a bill, I got to convince you know, at least 50 other people to vote along with me in the House of Delegates. Then I've got to convince at least 21 people to vote along in the Senate. Then I got to convince the governor to sign it. Well, if you've got Democrats controlling all of it, like we do in Virginia, or if you've got Republicans controlling some of it, but Democrats control, it's difficult to make those arrangements. It's difficult to actually convince people to vote for your bill, unless your bill doesn't do anything. I mean, that, that's one thing that you'll hear people talk about is, oh, well, that legislator doesn't get anything done, right? John Boehner was bashing Ted Cruz saying, well, Ted Cruz talks a lot, but he doesn't get a lot done. Okay, let, let's put this in perspective. If you want to get something done within a legislative body, there's, there's a couple of things that you have to be willing to do um, or you have to at least consider doing. Some of those things are fine. Uh, some of those things I think are selling out. So one thing that you can do is that you can carry a bunch of legislation that doesn't really achieve much and doesn't really offend anybody and therefore doesn't really actually get anything done, but you get to go home and brag to your constituents about, look at all the bills I passed, right? You can do that. Uh, another thing that you can do is you can horse trade. You can say, hey, look, I'm going to vote for your bill, but I need you to vote for my bill, right? You can, you can go to your respective committee chairman, subcommittee chairman, and all that. You can say, hey, I really need this. This is the reasons why. You know, what's it going to take to get it done? And some people do the horse trading. Um, I, I don't believe in the horse trading. I will vote for a bill based off of the merits of that bill, and I will ask you to vote for my bill based off of its merit. But I'm not going to promise you anything to vote for my bill, and I'm not going to promise you anything to, to you know, vote for or... Um, to vote for my bill. And I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to accept any intimidation either. 
Um, because a lot of things work off this whole stick and carrot model where it's like, if you don't do this, you'll be punished. If you do this, you'll be rewarded. Um, and when you understand the way that the legislature works, leadership within the legislature, which is to say people like the Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the House has an enormous amount of power, enormous amount of power. The Speaker has to approve every single committee assignment within the Virginia House of Delegates. Right? It works a little bit differently up on, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. The, the Speaker still has a lot of authority with that, but um, they, they get to choose who sits on what committee. Or they can choose that you sit on no committees, right? So that, that's, a, that's a great deal of power. So the, the Speaker of the House has a much better, you know, has uh, far more power in order to leverage in order to get their bills passed, whereas other people don't. If you're in the minority party, it's incredibly hard to get bills passed. It's not just hard to get them passed because the majority party typically doesn't agree with what you're trying to do. It can also be difficult to pass because they will decide that they don't want certain people to have a bill. And so you'll see this, like I've had this happen to me before where I submitted, you know, three or four bills and there were some Democrats that decided that they liked my bill. And so they submitted the exact same bill. Well, when the two bills went before committee, mine had a much lower bill number, but which one do you think they took? Well, they took the Democrats bill. Why? Because, and look, I'm not saying that only Democrats do that. Republicans do it as well. Right. So that's how politics sometimes works its way in, into the game uh, with all of this. But, you know, again, to, to answer the initial question, why do politicians say one thing and do another? Well, first of all, if they do that, then you should get rid of them. Um, secondly, the reason why so many people do it and they're never gotten rid of is because, again, the only way they got elected in the first place was they promised you a bunch of things that some voters wanted to hear. And the person that was maybe really honest about what government shouldn't be doing or should be doing, or was just fiscally responsible about what it was capable of doing within the current budget, well, people don't want to hear that, especially when you've got another option. And this option is saying that they can produce all of those things, right? So if, if the government's Santa Claus, then, then whoever's the one that's promising the most goodies on the campaign trail gets elected, right? And then when it comes up time for re-election, you know, again, they're the incumbent now, so they, they have an a built-in advantage when they run for re-election. So that, that's why a lot of times politicians will say one thing and do another is because if they don't say the thing that you want to hear, they can't get elected. Now, they, they'll come up with a better excuse on why they couldn't get it done, or they'll blame somebody else, right? It's always easy to blame somebody or the institution or lobbyists or whatever it is on why they couldn't get it done. And that's why they need more time, right? And if you'll re-elect them, they'll continue to work on this, All right? So some of it with getting things done is a, is a legitimate, it's just a long, arduous process. Because the one thing I would tell you as well with, you know, why can't we get anything done? I would submit that you don't want a government that is super efficient at passing new laws, right? And George Will said this best when he said that American political gridlock is not a problem, it's an achievement. Because again, when we talk about the government doing something, there's only one way one way the government does things, they use force. That's it. That's how the government does things. They use force, right? When they pass a bill, what are they doing? They're writing a law, right? When they give money to something, what are they doing? Well, they took money from somebody else and then they gave it to somebody else. That's what they're doing. So everything the government does is through force. And quite frankly, you don't want a government where people are just making decisions or signing a bunch of executive orders that is now the law of the land or that can deprive you of liberty or property because they're getting things done, right? Because bottom line is, is that you're talking about a room full of people that, yeah, sure, they went through a, a process and they got elected, 
That doesn't make them subject matter experts on every single bill that comes before them. I mean, in the Virginia General Assembly alone, in a 60-day session, there'll be over 2,000 bills submitted. 2,000. On everything from education policy to transportation to taxes. I mean, you name it. We, we cover a, a whole, I mean, if, if you can put it into the law, right, we see it. And so there's a number of things, and you don't want that to be this quick process. We're all on board and we're just passing things through that could have really significant dire consequences, right? So again, that, that answers that the first question, if you're tired of politicians that say one thing and do another, well, then you have to reward people that are actually honest about what can be done and what they will do and, and are honest with you about how likely it is to be achieved or are honest with you about maybe that's not something government should be doing. This is another thing, to be quite honest, that drives me nuts is that every time there's a problem, it's always, well, what's my representative going to do about it? Or what's the government going to do about it? There are some things that it is absolutely 100% my job to do as an elected official. There is a whole host of other things that the government should not even attempt to be doing because they won't do it well. Because the only real mechanism they have in order to accomplish things is the use of force, right? When politicians say things like, all we're asking... <laughs> They're not asking you anything. They're going to write a law, and once the law is in place, they're going to punish you if you don't do it. All right, so don't, don't reward people that promise you the world because they're probably not going to be able to deliver on it. And if they are delivering on it, well, then they did it by probably hurting somebody else or by hurting future generations because they paid for it with debt spending. All right, let's look at another one. Okay, <laughs> this is one of my favorites. Uh. And, and conservatives, I'm looking at you on this one. I'm looking at you on this one. All right. <clears throat> Why can't politicians simply listen to we the people? I hear this a lot. And, I, and I'm going to be honest. I hear it predominantly in conservative circles. Why don't politicians listen to we the people? Let me be just very blunt and upfront. That is a stupid statement. I'm sorry if you've used it before. I apologize. I'm not trying to offend you, but I want you to think about this for a second. Why don't we listen to we the people? I, I don't know. Because we the people don't agree on things. We the people don't agree on what should be done. The whole process is of us getting up there and arguing and debating and going back and forth and sharing perspectives and counter perspectives is because we the people elected a whole lot of people with different ideas about what should be done. And another offshoot of this question I hear sometimes is, well, if you're elected, are you going to listen to the voters? Well, yeah, I'm going to listen to the voters, but what, do you, what exactly do you mean by that? Because what some people mean is, I want you to listen to me and I want you to do what I want. Or what some people mean is that if your voters overwhelmingly don't like something, then you shouldn't vote for it. And what I usually tell them is, well, no, that's not the way I operate. It just isn't because it's not honest. All right, representative government is not your elected representatives taking a poll every time they vote on every single bill that they vote on and trying to determine where the majority of their district is at and then voting that way. That is not what we're supposed to do. If that's what we're doing, you, you can come up with an algorithm to do that. You, a computer can do that. You don't need a person. The whole idea of representative government is the idea that as we are running for election. We are supposed to be honest and open with you about what we believe, our governing philosophies, the way we view the role of government and the people, the way we view economics, the way we view civil liberties and civil rights. 
Uh, we should be honest with you about the process that we use when we're evaluating legislation. Like, so for me, it's a four-step process, right? Is it constitutional? Is it a legitimate function of government? What's the appropriate role of government to deal with the question? And does the solution offered protect individual liberty and private property rights, right? I ask those four questions when I look at a piece of legislation before I vote on it. Okay, that's what we should be doing because when, when you see a bill go before the General Assembly, from the time that bill is submitted to the time we're actually voting on it on the floor, it could have gone through several iterations. It could have been amended three or four times. So, so what would that even look like? What, would, I mean, okay, hey, everybody in my constituency, I represent 80,000 people. Hey, all 80,000 people, here's the current bill. What do you think? Yes, no. Oh, oh, it just got amended. Now what do you think? Oh, just got amended again. Now what do you think? No, you, you've delegated certain authorities to me to look at these bills, to track it as it's going through the amendment process in order to make a sound decision. Not to mention the fact that when you look at you know, what, what some people mean when they say, do what we the people want or listen to the people, a lot of times what they mean is listen to the latest like, popular survey that was just done. Well, okay, if CNN's taken the poll, do you want me to listen to them? If Fox News is taking the poll, do you want me to listen to them? No, my, my job should be to tell you enough about myself, about my thought process, about my philosophy, so that you can trust that what I represent when I'm looking at this legislation represents you. That's the mark of a good representative. A good representative is not someone that takes a poll every time they got to make a decision. It's someone who's honest with the voters, votes in accordance with what they told the voters they would do, if something changes, explain to the voters what changed and why you did what you did, and then let them decide the next election cycle whether or not to keep you. I think that, to me, that is what it means to be a representative of people, of free people. But there is no, there is no like common national will when it comes to, you know, we the people. We the people disagree, and those disagreements are reflected in the people that we elect. And that's why we have a deliberative process before we actually put laws on the books. Okay, so yes, every representative should listen to their constituents. Okay, but there is no practical way to, to get a good read of everybody I represent before I vote on each bill. Right, that, that's why you've delegated that authority for me to review it. And again, if you know where I stand and I've been honest with you, then you won't be surprised about how I vote. And if you are, I should owe you an explanation. Right, but that's, that's, for me at least, that's my mark of a good representative. And that's why the whole, why don't politicians listen to we the people? It's, it's why that, that question or that statement doesn't make sense to me. Um, again, when all the we the people agree, then that statement will make sense. I don't see that happening today. Probably not tomorrow either. All right, here's another one. Why are there so many negative attack ads in political campaigns? The short answer is because they work. Um, I'm not saying I like it, but they work. Um, and I, I have so many people tell me like, well, I, I hate all the negativity in, in campaigning. Okay. But that's not reflected in the way people vote. And, and I mean, forgive me, but sometimes people will say they don't like something, but that ends up being the most influential thing in deciding who they vote for. Um, now I, I will say this, when you look at negative ads, I place them into kind of three categories. So one, one category is the difference between a negative ad that comes from a campaign versus a negative ad that comes from an outside organization, all right? You need to understand something, especially on federal elections. 
if I'm running for, like when I ran for Congress, there were PACs that put out attack ads and people would blame me for them. I'm like, that's a PAC. They're like, oh yeah, but you work with them. No, I don't. Like by law, if you're running for federal office, you cannot coordinate with an outside political action committee. So they're over there doing all kinds of things that they think are helpful. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But that is, that's not the campaign. That's why it's so important when you look at a negative campaign ad, look for the paid for by, right? They're, by law, they're supposed to say paid for by, and they're supposed to tell you like paid this, this, you know, or I'm Nick Freitas and I approve this message. That's, to, that's so you know whether or not it's coming from me or if it's coming from an outside group. So that's one category. And there's two types of, of what falls into negative ads. And I'm going to say this as there's legitimate negative ads. And then I, I think there's like what I believe to be dishonest um, negative ads. So and, and an attack ad or something that can be called an attack ad. If, if I vote a certain way that my opponent doesn't like and they bring it up and they say, Nick Freitas voted this way, you know, vote for me because I'll vote the opposite way. That's a negative ad. But it, it could also be useful information to the voter. Right, because you're, you're not just voting for what you want to see done, you're also voting against what you don't want to see done. So, so a, a negative ad or a, um, a contrast ad that, that shows differences between you and your opponent um, isn't necessarily a bad thing or I think an inappropriate thing. Now, on the other side, you've also got the attack ads which are either dishonest, manipulative, or um, you know, they're, they're not really telling you the whole story or giving you context. They're basically throwing something out there in the hopes that it'll stick and that's all you'll remember. And again, one of the reasons why they use the negativity instead of the positivity is because a lot of times you're more likely to remember the negative. And, and this is something that has been poll tested I don't know how many times. You're likely to remember negative attacks. They stick with you. Um, you know, later on, if you don't know much about that candidate or you haven't really been paying attention, but you remember something about that candidate doing something bad or wasn't that candidate the one, and then you'll hedge your bets, right? Because you got a whole life to live. You got a bunch of other things that you're trying to do. And when it comes to deciding who's going to represent you, if you're, if you're not especially involved or, um, you're, you're, you don't really associate with a particular political party, there's a high probability that if you have a negative impression of someone, you will vote against them as much as you would vote for the other person. And that's why you see so many negative attack ads. But again, if, if you don't like that, if we're serious now, right? If we're not just saying this because it's popular to say that, oh my gosh, politics is so negative. If we're actually serious now, you as a voter have a lot of power here and, and that power comes with don't reward people that run those sorts of campaigns. Uh, but the thing that I would encourage you to do is, again, break it down to those three categories. First of all, am I mad at a candidate for something they said or didn't say, or am I mad at some outside group that's supposed to be helping them, right? Because don't you can't hold them to blame for something that they weren't allowed to even coordinate with or talk to them about or anything like that. It's not up to them, right? That's important to remember. The second thing is, is was this negative ad actually useful? Did it actually provide useful information? And this is, this is important. And did it give me information to be able to do my own research? It's because a lot of times on these ad pieces, you'll see, hey, they voted this way and here's the reference to the bill. Okay, now they've given you something to actually go and look. Now, sometimes they do that because they're counting on you not to check, right? And, and there have been people that have gotten in trouble over this because they, they put in a little quote and then if you actually go and read the quote or you read the news article, you find out, wait a second, that's not what the person did. But again, they put that in there because they're counting that you're going to look at the mail piece right? Are you going to see the TV ad? 
You're going to remember the negative. You're going to see that there's a reference for it. And so you think, oh, okay, well, this is backed up by something. And then you're going to throw it away. Right? If you really want to know it's true, sometimes you actually got to check the reference point. Right? And then that third type of attack ad is the one that is deliberately dishonest, deceptive. Um, they, you know, they're, they're not looking to uh, actually back up their claims. They're just throwing crap at the wall and hoping it sticks to their opponent. Right? And I, I think that is totally illegitimate. Um, and, and it really you know, reduces the whole level of civility within politics. But that, that's why negative ads are used. Polling after polling after polling shows that negative ads work. I, I wish it wasn't the case. I wish it wasn't the case. But, but again, you see a candidate out there that's doing a pretty good job of being civil and to reward that candidate. Reward that candidate with your vote, provided that they actually believe what you believe, right? You don't want to just vote for a, a person that's nice, but is going to vote, you know, completely against your own um, wishes. Okay, why do so many politicians run unopposed? Um, this is something that we've seen a lot in Virginia. There was actually a lot of frustration over this where you had a lot of Republicans saying, why was it that it was something like 40 Democrats run, ran for re-election to the House of Delegates completely unopposed? I think it was 40. It was close to that. And, and a lot of people got really mad at the Republican Party of Virginia. They got mad at you know, different Republican organizations, this idea that you're not doing your job. Okay. I will say this. I, I do think that at least this year in Virginia, and I'm sure it's like this in other states as well, um, they have tried to do a lot more to actually recruit more candidates to run in districts. But again, here's the honest truth, right? My, my job is not to tell you what you want to hear necessarily. It's to tell you what I think the truth is. And hopefully you want to hear the truth. But part of the reason why it's so difficult to get people to run for office in certain seats is because there's a huge price to pay for running for office. Now, I, I know that there's sometimes this impression that the people that run for political office just desperately love politics and desperately love campaigning and kissing babies and raising money is their favorite thing to do. Okay, let me just tell you, <laughs> campaigning is brutal. Um, you know, I don't mean to, it, it's, it's brutal because it's long hours. Um, in many cases, it's very repetitive. Uh, you spend half of your time on the phone, you know, doing campaign or calling for campaign donations so that you can fund your campaign staff, so you can get out your mailers, so you can get your door knockers, so you can get your TV ads. Um, almost nobody is happy with you when you're running for office. They all think you should be doing something differently. Um, it's, it's difficult. It's a huge strain. By the way, if you're not independently wealthy, man, you, you take a hit, um, I mean, thankfully, I was able to, to work and campaign at the same time, but I mean, my, my ability to work significantly dropped in order to try to effectively campaign. So there, there's a huge trade-off there in just my responsibility for taking care of my family. You know, I'm not able to work and, and produce as much for my family because here I am trying to run for office. Um, so all that to say that there is a huge commitment behind running for office. Now, I want you to imagine going into a place that is like a deep blue district and telling a Republican, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your life on hold for a year. And then I want you to spend, you know, eight hours a day doing things, half of which you don't really like, like, you know, calling for money and raising campaign donations and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and while all this is happening, um, People are going to attack you. They're going to attack you. They're going to attack your business. They're going to attack your family. They're going to try to destroy you. They're going to read over everything you ever put on social media, everything you ever said in a public statement. 
every tweet you ever did, and they're gonna look for anything they possibly can to destroy you. They're gonna try to review you know, that speeding ticket that you got. They're gonna go over all of that, so they're gonna try to destroy you personally, they're gonna try to go after your family, they're gonna go after your business. Um, meanwhile, you're spending eight hours a day at, at a minimum just actively campaigning and trying to win. And at the end, if you do everything right, if you nail all of your debates, if you knock 5,000 doors, if you, um, you know, participate in all the town halls, if you, uh, you know, raise a bunch of money, if you do everything right, you're going to lose by 30 points. Is, I mean, does that sound appealing? Because that's the reality. If you're, if you're running in some of these districts that are D plus 50 districts, which means Democrats have a 50% advantage or 50 point uh, advantage within that district, which is to say that a Democrat usually wins by 50 points, you do everything right and you lose by 45, okay, great, you did a great job. You still lost by 45 points. There's just not a lot of people that want to commit that much time and effort to doing that. Now, we, do we need people that are willing to, to run in difficult races? Um, yeah, we do. But I, I think we should have a little bit more respect for how difficult an ask that is and, and how much of a strain that can be on the, the actual candidate that we're asking to run. Um, so if, if you do want to see more people running in these difficult districts, you know, we're going to have to come alongside them and help them out. But by the same token, you also want to be careful about how much resources you dedicate to that race. Cause what you don't want is to pull resources away from a district. That's a swing district, right? It's decided by one or two points and put all this time and effort into a district that you're just probably not going to win for the next 10 to 15 years. Right, so you, you do have to think strategically about this. It's not just as easy as, well, let's just get somebody to run in every seat. Um, so what I always tell people, if you're asking me that question, it's a good question. And it's something we should do, we should do a better job on. But as I read off all the requirements and what it actually means to accomplish that, if you're thinking to yourself, I would never do that, so is probably everybody else, right? So that's, that's why it's, it's difficult to get them to do that. All right, um, okay, here we go. Why is it that every time I send a well thought out letter to my representative, I get the stupid form letters back? Um, or auto response is another one that you see on emails. So again, if you've ever written a, a, an elected official before, you might've gotten one of these, but you know, you, you'll write about, maybe you're writing about gun control or you're writing about taxes or whatnot. And you get one of these, you know, you know we, we are very pleased to receive your letter. Your letter is very important to us, blah, blah, blah. Right? And, you, and you're almost looking at it going, this was some staffer that saw this, printed up this form letter and sent it out. Why do they do that? Well, again, it, it kind of stinks. I get it. By the same token, if you're in Congress, so if you're a representative in Congress, you represent, I think, close to 800,000 people, right? That, you're getting a lot of letters, a lot of correspondence. And sometimes what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to let you know. And, and what they do is they sit through and they look at all the different uh, mail that comes in and, and what, and they categorize, you know, the first thing that they always ask is, is this in my district? Right. I see people all the time. They'll email all 100 delegates. When you email all 100 delegates or you email all, you know, 400 plus members of the house of representatives, the first thing that they're doing is saying, is this person my constituent? And it's, it's not because they don't care about the issue. It's mainly because nobody has unlimited time and resources. And so they're, they're trying to focus their effort in order to get is, you know, to, to focus our effort toward their actual constituents, all right? So that's, that's a reasonable reason why you, you get that. When it comes to the form letter, 
again, what they've typically done is they've looked at like hot button issues. Um, I do this with my legislative aide, with my chief of staff. We'll sit down and we'll look at various issues that we're getting a lot of correspondence on. A lot of people are emailing us, calling us, asking about a particular bill. And what we'll do is we'll look at that particular bill and I'll articulate my position. And then when somebody responds, we'll send out a response to them on email or, or Gene will talk to them on the phone or I'll talk to them on the phone and we'll, we'll explain, hey, this is my position. Now, some people still get mad because like, well, you didn't answer this question. Like, well, again, if, if I've got 500 people asking me about that and I've still got to go to all my subcommittee meetings and full committee meetings and, and everything else, it's going to be difficult to do an individual response for each person. And so we, we try to make as comprehensive a response as possible, outlining what the issue is and what my position is on it and why I have that position so that you have all the necessary information to know where I stand, right? And then we, we usually try to categorize, these are how many people said they like it, these are how many people said they don't like it, these were the different reasons. And then we'll go in and again, I, we try to provide opportunities at later, later times as well to give a more in-depth response. But, th but that's why you get the form letter, right? It it's not just that you're being, it's, it's not just because they're lazy and they're blowing you off. It's usually because they're getting a ton of correspondence and they're, they're trying to manage their staff and their staff's time as best they can in order to effectively respond to what your fundamental question is. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not giving everyone a, a pass. Um, I'm just saying that, keep that in mind. There, there is a lot coming in and that's why those exist sometimes. All right, why do lobbyists have so much power? Well, this actually goes back to the first question on why there's so much money in politics. Um, first of all, the amount of power lobbyists have is, is kind of relative. Um, one, it's relative to your elected representative. If, if you've got a really weak representative, then yeah, lobbyists might have a, a huge influence over them. Um, like for instance, if there's a, a particular industry within a district that is really that supplies you know five to ten percent of the district's job, and that lobby is very influential with that. And and again, what it is is that that elected official is now sensitive not necessarily to the lobbyist. What they're sensitive to is who the lobby represents, because if it's a, a huge portion of their constituents or whatnot, well then you know again they they might have a good reason to be um, concerned about it. But it's not so much the individual lobbyist that has you know power now. Again, you can have a lobbyist that represents a lot of people, represents a lot of industry. They might have a good relationship with leadership. And so, yeah, they might be able to pull strings behind the scene to get a bill killed or amended or sent to a different committee or, or whatever it is. That, that definitely can and does happen. Um, but, but overall, there's this idea that, you know, certain lobbyists walk into the office and that's decided. Well, yeah, I'm sure that's true in some, certain situations. Here's, here's what my experience with lobbyists have been. First of all, lobbying is nothing more than approaching an elected representative because you want to see some sort of change or you don't want to see some sort of change and, and expressing your viewpoint, your perspective, and your rationale or data for why you, you think a certain way. And then you have an official lobbyist, which typically has to register with the state. Um, and, and they come in and they basically what, it, what an, a professional lobbyist is, it's, it's just someone who's there to professionally argue in favor or against whatever organization they represent. And again, sometimes they represent industries. Sometimes they represent issues, right? The Family Foundation uh, generally looks at things with, with family-related issues, and that's who they lobby on behalf of. Now, 
all of the people that agree with those things could all individually come down to Richmond and do it themselves, but they have lives to live. And so what do they do? They donate to an organization like the Family Foundation. The Family Foundation hires people uh, that are familiar with the legislative process. They know who the committee chair uh, people are. They, they understand the various, um, you know, um, insights into how different legislators think about this issue. They know how to make the argument in a way that a particular legislator might appreciate. And so that's what they do, right? So lobbying in and of itself is not a bad thing. The problem becomes when lobbyists are essentially trying to get the government to do things that the government shouldn't do, right? But a lot of people try to do that. So um, I, I would say that the biggest part that's concerning about lobbyist power is, again, when it, when you get to a position where you have a lobbyist that um, doesn't feel like they have to be honest anymore about what they're representing. And mostly my experience with lobbyists is that they're pretty honest with you about who they're representing and what they're trying to achieve. Um, because they know if they lie to you, I'll never trust you again. I'll never, I mean, if you want to come in and give me data and explain to me why um, you know, the, the horse council doesn't like this particular bill. And I find out later that you were lying to me about something you're banned from my office. And so they, they typically don't do that. They want to build that relationship and they want to understand how to make the argument in such a way that you'll understand and appreciate. Um, and, and so again, when we see like, you know, why are lobbyists so powerful? It, it, it just kind of depends, but, but honestly, they're just typically people that are really good at, at arguing in favor or against a particular piece of legislation that some you know, industry group uh, organization is hired to represent them in, in Washington, D.C. because that group wants to focus on doing whatever they're doing. Maybe it's making cars, maybe it's educating, maybe it's agriculture, right? And they, they wanna hire someone in order that, that knows the process uh, within D.C. or within Richmond in order to go and do that. And so, that's what it is. But, you know, again, lobbyists are like anyone else. You can have good ones, you can have bad ones. Um, the, the, real, the real trouble gets when you have weak representatives that are easily swayed, or they're not swayed by reason or analysis or data, but they're swayed based off of their fear of not getting reelected. Um, that's one piece of advice I give to everyone that's running for office is know what you believe, be honest with the people you're going to represent about what you believe, and be willing to accept it that when you have to do what you think is the right thing, if you be, be prepared to lose an election over it. And if you're not prepared to lose an election over it, if you're going to convince yourself that, well, now I've got to modify what I'm going to do right now in order to get reelected because I can't do good things if I can't get reelected, I'm sorry, dude, you're already lost, right? It's only a matter of time before you're agreeing to things and voting on things that you never thought you would have. Um, all right, and here we go. Last question. <laughs> How do people enter politics middle class and leave millionaires? That is a great question. And I would love to crack the code on it because uh, I am not a millionaire, uh, never been a millionaire, and probably not on my way there anytime soon. Certainly not, uh, certainly not through politics. Um, a lot of people think that the, the way that, the reason why so many people enter politics, you know, at one income level, and then the next thing you know, you know, they're there for 15, 20 years and they're worth millions of dollars. First of all, a lot of the people worth millions upon millions of dollars came in rich, right? Came in wealthy. There's a reason why they call the U.S. Senate the Millionaires Club. I, I think Joe Biden at one point was the poorest member of the Senate and his combined family household income was, I think, over $300,000, um, like at a, at a low point. I could be wrong on that, but it, it, that gives you an idea that we're, we're not talking about people that don't already have some degree of money. House of Representatives is a little different. Um, 
you do have people coming into the House of Representatives where the $175,000 a year they make is the most they have, they have ever made in their lives uh, doing a job. Um, so how do they leave as millionaires later? Well, there's a couple different ways that they do it. One is through the stock market. Now, a lot of people get mad at this. They say, well, this is insider trading. There's certainly, there's certainly insider trading certainly can't exist. Here's what I think is, is a more likely answer, right? Here's what I, I think is the truth. Um, if you're an elected representative and you're serving on committees where you have certain knowledge of things that are going on, right? Um, that gives you an advantage. And if you start investing in a company before a bill passes, because you know that bill is going to pass, even though it hasn't officially come to a vote, and you buy a bunch of that stock, that is a representation of what I would call engaging in a form of insider trading. Um, if you know that it's going to pass because you were on the committee, um, and you wait until it does passes, and then you buy, you can still do really, really well on that stock, but it's not insider trading anymore because all of that was public knowledge. You didn't vote before there was public knowledge. Now, it's illegal to use that inside information as a member of Congress to buy a bunch of stocks, which you know are going to be impacted by things that you're voting on, right? Now, does it still happen? I'm sure it does, but if they can actually prove it, it's illegal and they can prosecute people for that. Um, there, there's even limitations on, on how much you can, you know, they even watch what your family does on this stuff as well. Um, and some people will say, well, you know, not only you shouldn't be able to do it, your wife shouldn't be able to do it, your kids shouldn't be able to do it. Well, now you're running into an issue where, yeah, there, there's certainly an ethical concern here, but by the same token, you know, if, if you're, I don't know, if your son decides to invest in a stock as part of a regular portfolio and never talked to you before you took the vote or didn't even know that you were on that committee and you know that, never had that conversation, are you now going to prosecute the legislator or the son for investing in a stock? Like, how do you, how do you adjudicate that, right? How do you determine when something just happens because of normal and legal practices and how something happens uh, when it was illegal or insider trading, right? So that's, that's some of the difficulties associated with it because some people wonder, why do you just pass a law saying that, you know, if you're related to a congressperson, you can't do this? Well, now you run into a problem where by virtue of running for office, I pretty much put my entire family in a legal conundrum. Um, but I, I do think people should follow ethical standards, and I, and I do think that there's probably areas for reform in the law when it comes to legislators uh, investing in the stock market. So that's, that's one of the biggest ways that legislators tend to become wealthy. And again, it's not that they're using insider information. Let's just say that they knew ahead of time, before it became public, right, they knew things were trending in a particular direction, so they were ready so that when it became legal for them to invest, they were able to invest. You know, again, are there some ethical issues there? Yeah, no doubt, right? It's just difficult to write in a code on how you stop some of that. The other way that people can become uh, wealthy and common, you can write books, right? There, there's actually limits on how much money you can make outside of your salary doing certain things. So like if you write books, you can make money off of that. Um, but you can't go in, like if, if you're a doctor, for instance. So Rand Paul does a lot of work with optometry uh, or uh, does a lot of work, you know, um, within his practice. Um, but he, there's, there's limitations on what he can make when he does that. So he does a lot of pro bono work, uh, and he does some work to obviously keep, keep up, uh, in line with his, with his skill set. Uh, but there are, there are limitations on how much money you can make outside of your congressional pay doing certain things. And part of that is because they don't want to create a situation where somebody gets a particular job or sitting on a board of directors making a cushy sum because they also happen to be sitting on a committee that handles legislation that's going to affect that industry, right? So there, there are rules in place for some of that. Um, the other way that they get really wealthy is 
people will have a break in politics, right? So maybe they weren't super wealthy when they were, they were in political office, but then as soon as they left political office, they got a job at, you know, a million dollars a year for some lobbying firm. And why did they get hired? Well, because they know all the ins and outs. They know all the players. They know who to talk to. They know, you know, how to make the arguments. So that's why a lot of them end up getting wealthy by going into a lobbying. Some of them go within the business world and they play kind of a quasi-advisory or lobbying function. But again, one of the reasons why the businesses hire them in the first place is because they want that connection to the political power in Washington, D.C. And, and again, you can look at that and they, they have certain restrictions in place. You know, there, there are rules with respect to uh, someone leaving government and not being able to get a lobbying job within a couple of years. Um, but ultimately, again, it's it's somewhat difficult to regulate on if you serve an elected office, are you, are you never allowed to have some of these jobs uh, or whatnot? But um, again, a key component of all this is that when you're voting for people, you want to vote for people that actually have some ethical standards and have demonstrated that they have ethical standards so that they're not using their office for, for personal financial gain or trying to cover it up by doing it through their family or, or whatever else. Um, okay. Gosh, what do we go through? We went through about nine questions there. Um, look, I, I love doing stuff like this. I love taking questions that I'm commonly asked or that our, our viewers or our listeners ask. And then again, just giving you a straight up answer of how I see it. Um, and, and that's, again, that is what you'll get when you come here. You will get a straight up answer on what I, what I think is true. And I'll give you the reasons why I think it's true and the data behind why I think something is true. Uh, but I am not always going to say something that you might agree with as a result. Like I said, I know I'm going to have conservative friends of mine that are mad that I said that the whole we the people question doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but I think that's important, right? You deserve that. Um, so I want to once again, thank you for joining us. Here's another thing I want to put out there real quick. Um, we need people to like and subscribe. All right. I, Bottom line is that is the currency of podcasts. It's the currency of YouTube. If you want there to be more voices out there talking about the issues that are important to you, talking about them from the perspectives that you appreciate, using the facts and evidence that you want in order to make your effective argument when you're in one of these discussions, uh, then we need you to help us out. You know, like, share, write us a review. And you'll see, I go on there, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on YouTube, I like to interact uh, with our audience when they come on and they ask questions or they make statements. Um, so please ask your questions in there. Who knows? You might get your very own podcast episode dedicated to the question that you ask. So once again, thank you for joining us. I hope this was helpful and we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.